Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network. Broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio Show or endorsed in any manner by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, the Exxon Broadcast Network, its affiliated networks, stations, employees, or advertisers. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome to the X-Zone, everyone. I am Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I am your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the X-Zone. It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the X-Zone comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here on the X-Zone Broadcast Network and a growing family of broadcast affiliates around the world, including iHeartRadio. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, TV. And if you'd like to find out what is available to you 24-7-365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. My first guest tonight, Exxon Nation, is David Brody. And uh, David, welcome to the Exxon. Thank you, Rob. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am an attorney uh, by trade, and about 10 years ago, I stumbled upon a, a local legend in, in Massachusetts where I live about Scottish explorers island hopping their way across the North Atlantic and ending up uh, in New England about a Columbus. And so I sort of looked at that and said, well, that's sort of a fun thing. And you know, the lawyer in me was curious about, is there enough evidence to prove that case? And so I went down that rabbit hole about 10 years ago, and I've been... I've been ferreting around down there for the last decade, uh, looking at all the different pieces of evidence that indicate there were a number of waves of explorers who came over to America mm-hmm. uh, before Columbus. And uh, I've written a bunch of novels, about seven novels about it, historical fiction type things. 
And, uh, and it's my passion. My kids call me the rock nerd because I spend all my time out in the woods looking at the <laughs> artifacts and whatnot. Well, it could be a lot worse uh, these days. Yeah, but tell me something, Counselor. As a lawyer, why is it that we are still teaching in schools and learned institutions that Christopher Columbus discovered America instead of telling our children the truth? It's a little bit like the Easter Bunny, isn't it? Yeah, it you is. Know, like it is yeah. At some point, you tell your kids the Easter Bunny's not real. Um, I, I think that... Uh, to a large degree, it goes back to a, a professor at Harvard University named Samuel Eliot Morrison, who was a Presidential Medal of Freedom and, and a really well-known Pulitzer Prize uh, historian. And his guy was Christopher Columbus. He was the biographer of Christopher Columbus. And for a long time, if you dared suggest somebody was here before Chris, Samuel Eliot Morrison would pretty much ruin your career. So in academia, all through the latter half of the 20th century, it was like the third, really, you just couldn't go there. Now, finally, there's just so much evidence, and he's gone, um, and we're slowly starting to turn the, the ocean liner. But it, it takes about a generation to get people to come at this with a fresh set of eyes. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot of good TV shows, America on Earth, Curse of Oak Island, mm -hmm. a number of shows, uh, documentaries are starting finally to convince people, look, there's just too much evidence to ignore on this. And I like to say that, you know, as a lawyer, normally I don't care about things like the truth. All right. Yeah, come but on. Come in this on. particular case, I do. You know, it's what we teach our kids. Yeah, exactly. There's so much of it. So much evidence. So, but is is this going to open up the can of worms where we start saying, "Well, listen, if if we've been lied to about Christopher Columbus, what else have we been taught about that are lies?" Well, it's not, I don't know if it's that they're lies or just mistakes. I mean, up until about ten years ago, the 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 the, the established uh, history was that civilization was invented 6,000 years ago mm -hmm. in Mesopotamia, in the Fertile Crescent, right, yeah. between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. We all learned that. Well, now it turns out, oh, no, it's not 6,000, it's 12,000 or 11,000 yeah. change back at a place called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, that that's where civilization first appeared. So they were not only wrong, they were wrong by a factor of two. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, we make fun of weathermen, but historians are even worse a lot of times. And I don't know if it's so much that they are lying or they just have blinders on and they just don't look at evidence that is contrary to what the established uh, teachings are. But either way, the result is the same. You make a very good point. We're not getting the truth. That's right. All right, please stand by, David. Exonation David Brody is our special guest this hour. His website is www. Are you ready for this? Do you have your pencils and paper ready? Okay, davidbrodybooks.com. That's www.davidbrodybooks.com. And David and I will be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget you can get your complimentary copy of the X-Chronicles newspaper. Either you can download it online or read it online at www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, 
Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back, everybody. David Brody is our special guest of this hour, www.davidbrodybooks.com. David, now, how did you first come to write about the ancient goddess? So my, my research has taken me, again, I started uh, looking at the, the, the legend of Prince Henry Sinclair in the mm-hmm. late 1300s coming over to New England, and then worked my way back. And it seems like the, the first group of people, I think, who came over here were the ancient Phoenicians, the seafaring Phoenicians. In many ways, that sort of opened the floodgates for many other groups to come over. And the fascinating thing about the Phoenicians is that even though they were, uh, we know that the, uh, back then uh, a lot of women worshipped the goddess. This is about the time, you know, biblical times. But it turns out a lot of the Phoenician sailors had these uh, feminine figures called Tanit figures in their, sail, in their sailing ships, and they were worshipping the goddess as sailors. And it also turns out that these, these Tanit figures ended up being found all across North America, which to me was really strong evidence that the Phoenician sailors had actually made it across. And in addition to the Tanit figures, a second uh, symbol called the Hamza hand, some people know that as the hand of God, it's basically a palm with an all-seeing eye in mm-hmm. it, okay? yes. a hand mm-hmm. with an all-seeing eye in the palm. These things are found in the Middle East and also found in Native American burial mounds in the southwest of and the southeast, apparently, of, of pardon me, of the United States. But anyway, these 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 symbols, these talisman, these figurines, these statuettes, these statues, are being found on on both Phoenician sailing ships and in the Middle East, and also in America. And to me, again, that's evidence that there was communication and transportation back and forth. So again, it starts with the Phoenicians, and we find this goddess worship came back and forth across, and then we find a really interesting thing that the, when the Knights Templar went to the Middle East as part of the Crusades in the 11th century, that uh, picture them surrounded by hostile forces, the Saracens, the Moors. The one group that was allied with the Christian Crusaders was the old Christians of the Middle East called the Coptic Christians. And these people lived in Lebanon, and these people were the descendants of the Phoenicians. And so we had this interesting alliance between the Templars in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, and the Phoenician descendants, the Lebanese. And it, I think it's through them that the Templars sort of grabbed hold of this goddess worship stuff 
and again brought it over again later on. So I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but the key players in all this seem to be the Phoenicians. So when did the transition from a female goddess turn to the male de- deity? Right, so that's right about back in biblical times. Mm-hmm. If you read the, the story of Abraham, and at the time when he married Sarah, Sarah was actually a priestess, and she and her, uh, the other women in the, in the tribe were, were worshipping goddess figurines. If you've read the book, uh, maybe some of your listeners, uh, The Red Tent by Anita Diamant, she goes into that. But it was right about that time where we're transitioning from the idea of lots of different gods and goddesses to mm-hmm. a single male deity. Um, and it was, you know, that, that's part of, the, of course, the Ten Commandments. Right. There be no other god before me, no false idols. And Abraham and, and, and the other men, they go around and they destroy these figurines, these goddess figurines, these fertility shrines. Um, and you see a lot of that if you read the, in the Old Testament. For the next, sure. uh, you know, thousand years almost, you start to see this battle between the strict male patriarchal members, leaders of the, of the synagogues, and the women who are trying to worship the fertility, ancient fertility goddesses and ancient fertility shrines. Um, and what we, what we find in all the cultures, all the old cultures, this seemed to happen, really interestingly, at right about the same time a culture adopted the alphabet. That seemed to also usher in this idea of a male primal deity. Um, is the, is almost the... as if that side of our brain that allows us to read mm-hmm. also is more male-dominated. You know, the, the left side of the brain. Well, is there any the correlation between... Rational. Is there any correlation between the time that uh, the uh, the switchover from the female deity to the male deity in one part of the world, was there any correlation with what happened in Egypt when King Akhenaten decided yes, that, hey, sir. there's the Ra god, and that's it? That's very interesting, because, you know, in, in Egypt, now they did not have a written alphabet, so there, there was a picture alphabet. Hieroglyphics, sure. So they never became totally patriarchal. In fact, the pharaohic line passes through the female, which is why the pharaohs all married their sisters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we see is that in that particular case, it never turned patriarchal. They worshipped Isis, for example, because yeah. uh, they didn't have the written alphabet like other cultures did, who then turned into worshipping Yahweh. That's a very interesting point you bring up, Robin, and, 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 and illustrative of what I'm talking about, right. that it seems to be determinative uh, based on whether uh, cultures had an alphabet, a, a script alphabet or not. Where did the Templars fit into all of this? You know, like the Templars are very popular thanks to Dan Brown, and, um, you know, like you were saying, television shows like The Curse of Oak Island and other such uh, presentations. So where did the Templars fit in? Right, so understand the Templars originally were formed as sort of uh, to, to fight the Crusades yeah. in, in shorthand. It's a little more complicated than that, but they were very strict. You know, they were the army of the Church. They were strict Christians, but they went over to the Middle East, and they were there for a long time, you know, almost a couple centuries. And during that time, they were exposed to different teachings and different cultures. And I, I think that anybody who travels a lot, you can't help but be influenced by that. That is true. And in addition, they were exposed to some ancient Christian sects, like the Coptics. Mm-hmm. And remember, it wasn't until about the year 321 A.D., it's something called the Council of Nicaea, where Christianity was sort of codified, the teachings of Christianity codified. But for about two or three hundred years before that, it was sort of a bunch of different ideas of Christianity. And one of those ancient ideas 
was one in which Mary Magdalene was, was viewed as the partner of Jesus. And I think what happened was the Templars were exposed to those teachings, and they started to realize, hey, you know what? Nature requires balance. Yeah. All things work better with balance. Mm-hmm. And this patriarchal thing, this all-male thing, it's not working for us. And so they came back to Europe, and I think they tried to push the Church to be uh, to reforming a little bit, to be more... Uh, feminine, if you would, and that's where they butted heads, and that's, I think, what eventually led to the downfall of the Templars, and the reason they eventually ended up coming over to America, I think, was sort of to get away from the Church and try to create a, a safe haven for themselves, knowing that, as, as indeed happened, the Church at some point out, was going to outlaw them. You know, you're talking about the balance, and I've always said that this is a binary existence that we're in, because it's basically zero-ones, you know, how binary codes work. And, sure. and when you look at life, you know, up, down, in, out, male, female, good, bad, black, white, there's always a balance, you know, heaven, hell. So this yeah, is and a... There, and, there, and there has to be. Yeah. And, and I think what happened during the Dark Ages mm-hmm. is we, we fell out of balance, and right. even during, you know, the... the the medieval, the Inquisition and all that, we're out of balance there. And mm-hmm. I think the Templars, and I'm not talking about every single, you know, night out on the, in, on the, in the field, but I'm talking about the leaders, for, specifically uh, Bernard de Clairvaux, St. Bernard, who was the Cistercian founder and also one of the leaders uh, of the Templar movement. But there's some famous paintings of him uh, suckling at the breast of the Virgin Mary. He right. had these really specific dreams about suckling at her breast and a lot of medieval paintings of this, but he was considered one of the leaders of the Templar Cistercian movement, but, you know, we don't need Freud to interpret what that dream means. Obviously, he understood the importance sure. of the life-giving force of the feminine and of the balance that's necessary to have a healthy society. That's why we have Mother Earth. Exactly, and yeah. that was why ancient people all worshipped the feminine, not the masculine, yeah. the life-giver, Mother Earth. Exactly. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense. Because throughout history, when you look at the strongest and most compassionate rulers, they're always women. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, the Native Americans they, uh, um, become very friendly with a mm-hmm. lot of the Native Americans in New England. And uh, even though the male was the chief for war purposes, yeah. the female often, often made, uh, made decisions uh, for the tribe in non-war-related areas. And so they had to get in the balance. The, uh, both male and female ruling the tribes. So let's talk, let's break, come this way in history. Where do the Freemasons fit in? Because it seems that the Freemasons have a, have a very close tie with the Knights Templar. Exactly, and you can see this, this continuum that, you know, goes, I, I started with the Phoenicians and it comes down through the Templars and then it gets passed on to the Freemasons. And we see, even though the Freemasons are an all-male you know, group. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that, that, that you could think of them being feminists in their leanings, but they, but they really are. It's more about what you said, about balance yes. and duality. And so they have, if, I'm not a Freemason myself, but I've been to many lodges, and of course people will know they've got these, these two pillars that you sort of pass through on your way to enlightenment, and the pillars are called Yaquin and Boaz. And one symbolizes the male, it has the sun above it, it's right-handed. And the other is Boaz is female, it has the moon above it, it's left-handed. But you need both of them for balance and for uh, wisdom, and so you have to pass through both these pillars. But Freemasonry has a lot of this symbolism. Remember, the Statue of Liberty was given to us by the French Freemasons, and the Freemasons designed Washington, D.C., and you you can't help but notice the, the dozens of female 
you know, Lady Liberty statues or uh, uh, goddess figurines mm-hmm. on top of all the buildings and in all the rotaries, you know, right on top of the Capitol Dome. Lots of goddess imagery. Uh, and again, I think it's because the Freemasons, even though they are all male, they do recognize the importance of balance and the female in society. You know, when I, I remember when I was going to elementary school up here in Canada, we were taught that the Vikings, you know, had discovered America. And then as you went in further along your scholastic studies, it was automatically changed to, well, no, Christopher Columbus. And... Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the Viking thing, I mean, everyone agrees that they made it at least as far as Lonsdale Meadows in, in northern Newfoundland in yeah. the years, uh, you know, the first decade of the 11th century. But the story originally was that they sort of touched their toes and then ran home. Uh, I'm not sure why the Vikings would be scared off by the, the bone-wielding you know, Eskimos when the Vikings had steel uh, swords and whatnot. You know, that, especially, especially, since there's ne- especially since there's never been an Eskimo in Newfoundland. Even, even beyond, so whatever yeah. the scra- they call them scralings, whatever the Native Americans yeah. were. Um, in any event, it's now, I think, more understood that, that Lonsdale Meadows was a stopover point and that they definitely considered, because they continued further mm-hmm. south. If you read the Icelandic sagas, it talks about uh, cattle grazing over a snowless winter. Well, you're not going to have that in northern Newfoundland, I'm sorry. No, that's right. And it talks about making wine out of grapes. You don't have grapes that far north. And, and they found butternuts at the Lonsdale Meadows site, and they don't grow that far north. And so I think most archaeologists now agree that Lonsdale Meadows was a stopover point and that further south is where Vinland was found. So the Vikings came down into the Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Maine, perhaps Cape Cod area. You know, Cape Cod could have a snowless winter. Um, but as you said, we're still taught the Christopher Columbus thing, almost like the Vikings don't really count. That's right. But then we've got the question, so the Vikings were here, and then Columbus is like 500 years later. Did nobody come back in between? And that's the thing that always jumped out at me. And I think we're finding that there are waves of explorers back and forth after the Vikings, before Columbus, in addition to before the Vikings, of course. But, and the reason we don't hear about that is, you know, that was a really good economic opportunity to trade, mm-hmm. to fish, to harvest timber. Uh, and you don't want to give those advantages away. So you kept it secret. It's like your favorite fishing hole. You just don't talk about it. Well, we don't. Uh, we can't talk about fishing now, anyway, because we've got to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Please stand by, David. Exonation. David Brody is our special guest. His website is davidbrodybooks.com. And uh, David and I will be back on the other side of the news as we continue here in the Exxon from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Exxon Broadcast Network, on Sirius Satellite Network, Digital Broadcast Network, just to name a few, and of course iHeartRadio. Network broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN TV. For more information on the X Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. 
Welcome back, everyone. Before we get back to our guest uh, this hour, David Brody, don't forget you can get your complimentary copy of the X Chronicles newspaper this month in the month of, uh, let me see, I should say last month because we're in November now, 7.5 million copies downloaded around the world. Thank you so much, Exxon Nation. We're growing thanks to you and, of course, our broadcast partners. David Brody is our guest, www.davidbrodybooks.com. David, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Really uh, very interesting topic, trying to put sense into history. Um, so we've got the Templars that uh, were in the Crusades. We you know, we know about the, the, the greatest editing uh, fiasco in the world, uh, the Council of Nicaea, where they just decided what went in the Bible, what went, didn't go into the Bible. Um, we've got people actually coming over to North America, and there's even uh, some archaeologists are talking that there was trade in the Americas, with the Americas, prior or at the time of Christ, that it was in the Great Lakes area where the copper was acquired for all the bronze statues in right. the so Middle we, East. Yeah. We talked, go ahead, I'm sorry, so we talked about the Phoenicians, and, mm-hmm. and that's to me, that's the, the link that gets, the evidence that gets the Phoenicians here, the motivation that gets them here is, as you said, um, copper. So yeah. picture the Bronze Age, and we're talking maybe 1,000 or 1,500 B.C., and there's a lot of tin. For, for, for bronze, you need tin, you need copper. And there's a lot of tin on the southern coast of England in a place called Cornwall. And we know that the Phoenicians were sailing up there to get it and bring it back to the Mediterranean, but we don't know where the copper came from. Now, couple that with the evidence we have of the early pioneers coming across the Great Lakes region, the you know, English settlers, and the Native Americans saying, oh, yes, you know, our, our old history is that thousands of years ago, white men came to get the copper, and there's mm-hmm. all this float copper and these empty areas where copper was taken out. And I think it was the Phoenicians that came across to get the copper, to mine the copper, and bring it back. And that's what sort of you know, opened the floodgates to transatlantic travel. David, did you, have you heard stories about uh, Egyptian artifacts being found in the Grand Canyon? I have heard that story. I, um, there's some interesting, it was a, a newspaper article I believe written in the 1920s mm-hmm. about that, and nothing's been found since. I know that some people have tried to get down there, and you, know, you get the whole conspiracy thing where you know, the Park Service doesn't want anyone you know, exploring that area of the Grand Canyon, and is it for safety reasons, or is it because there are things people don't want found there? I don't know. You know, I, I, I can't speak to that. Right. Um, fortunately, for my purposes, there's so much evidence I can get to that I don't need to go, <laughs> go, you know, go trespassing down in the Grand Canyon. But the, um, you know, the, the evidence, for example, of the Phoenicians being over here, we have mm-hmm. a fabulous site in southern New Hampshire called the America Stonehenge site, which some of your listeners may know as Mystery Hill. And there are carvings there. Uh, talking about the uh, 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 a dedication to Baal of the Canaanites, Baal being the sun god, and the Canaanites being another name for the Phoenicians, and a sacrificial table similar to what was used in ancient Canaan to sacrifice animals and even the children of enemies on this site, and carbon dating showing that it goes back thousands of years. And this site may have been where the Phoenicians first uh, sort of put down their, 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 their roots when they first came to North America. It's near the coast, and then eventually made their way inland to the Great Lakes regions we just talked about. But the site in, in southern New Hampshire is you know, another amazing site sort of tying the Phoenicians to this whole story. 
The world is a lot smaller than we think. It is, and the people in ancient times were smarter than we think. Oh, big smarter time. than you know we are. You know, we, yeah. we we spend all our time watching TV, whatever. They they watch the stars, and they figured out how to navigate by them. They figured out the size of the Earth, the circumference of the Earth by the stars, and and the idea that you know ancient people thought they were going to fall off the end of the Earth if they sailed too far to the west. That that's just silly. They they didn't believe that. They knew better. What is your what is your opinion of Oak Island? Is there treasure buried there? So I don't know if there's still treasure buried there, but it looks like for certain that there used to be. Um, I'm not sure if any of your listeners or you have, uh, Rob, yourself, seen a, a book that came out about six or eight months ago called The Templar Mission to Oak Island and Beyond, written by a, a researcher named Zena Halpern. And Zena's been uh, on this research uh, journey for about mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years and finally was able to get her book out. She, she's, um, you know, it's been a lifelong passion of hers, but... She came across some uh, some journals that were found after World War II in a monastery in Italy that detail uh, a, a, mis- uh, a travel uh, mission by Templar Knights in the years like 1178, 1179, where they they left, they went to Jerusalem, found some stuff, uh, made their way up to Scandinavia, uh, found a guide, a Scandinavian guide, a woman by the name of Altamora, who then brought them across you know, following the old Viking path, uh, stopped at Oak Island for some reason, and then eventually made the way to the Catskills. And some fascinating things in these journals and fascinating artifacts that we found in the Catskills that sort of corroborate the story. Um, the question is, were they going to Oak Island to deposit treasure? Zena thinks they're actually going there to retrieve gold that was, you know, later there were gold mines in Nova Scotia near Oak mm-hmm. Island. Could be maybe a little bit of both. And then the question is, is the treasure still there? Um, there's another set of journals that are from a, the late 1300s that um, other researchers are working on that haven't come out yet, but they talk about how it's possible the treasure was used uh, by the revolutionary, uh, the patriots, to fund the Revolutionary War in the late 1700s. That there was a treasure buried up in Nova Scotia that was retrieved to fund the revolution. So there's lots of evidence that at one point there was some kind of treasure in that area, so, you know, where the smoke is fire. Yeah, and, and, and once again, how come our kids are not being taught this in school? Yeah, and all I can say is, you know, hopefully a generation yeah. from now, our, our grandkids will be, our kids will not, hopefully our grandkids will be. There's just so much of it. And, there and, is. And as the floodgates open up, it's going to be really hard to ignore. But it's fascinating, and, and, I, and I give credit to people like Scott Walter, who's out on the, on the cutting edge pushing these things, and and, and, and Zena Halpern, who I mentioned, and the right. Latina brothers, and other researchers who are out there really, you know, spending out, you know, a huge amount of their time trying to figure this stuff out. It, it really is fascinating stuff, and, and I love it because it's my passion, but, you know, these people are devoting their lives to it, and, and kudos to them. How many goddess sites are there in North America? You so a lot of it depends on how you want to define that. There's, there's a fascinating site, which is, which is what really got me going on this recently, in, in the town of Westford, where I live. This is the Westford night legend. I mentioned it mm-hmm. earlier, Scottish explorers, island hopping their way across to New England in the, four, in the 14th century, um, really close to where we think they landed and where one of their men died and was carved the Westford night effigy. Um, there's a pond, a kettle pond, which uh, only goes dry once every 80 or 100 years or so, and just about a year ago it went dry. And we were fascinated to find at the bottom of this pond 
there is a stone structure of some kind, a hmm. round stone circle, picture a womb with a, a path of white stones leading to it, picture like a birth canal. And, and we brought um, uh, some Freemasons over to take a look at it, a bunch of Native Americans over it. It's, it's clearly some kind of goddess worship site, a fertility site, again, the, the, the womb leading to the birth canal. The fact that it's been underwater for 80 to 100 years makes us wonder you know, how far back it goes and wonder, was it related to the 14th century Sinclair group, uh, again, closely associated with the Templars and the Freemasons? And um, It's a type of site that, it, in, in my mind, is, is a goddess site, but had been lost to, the, to history because it was underwater. There are other sites that are, are distinctly goddess, but have goddess connotations to them. For example, the chambers at America Stonehenge and other stone chambers around New England that are... Uh, open up and align to the uh, astronomical events, whether it be the solstice or the equinox or the cross-quarter days, that indicate a worship of Mother Nature, which mm -hmm. you can call goddess or not, but it's a worship of Mother Nature, of the uh, nature of the seasons. So, so, and this is, you know, you've, you've heard of this at, at the sites in, in Great Britain, such as uh, Stonehenge and Newgrange, right. where the sun comes through and, 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 and aligns in such a way to mark changing of the seasons. I would argue those sites, and we have them all over New England, are also goddess sites because they worship Mother Nature. What is your opinion of the Holy Grail? Because you brought in the, the you know, we, we've been talking about the, the Templars, we've also been talking about the Sinclairs, and they're very prominent in the story of the Holy Grail. What is your opinion? If you tell me what the Holy Grail is, I'll give you my opinion of where it is. <laughs> You, you don't know about the Holy Grail? No, I know what it is. But, oh, yeah, but like, what, right. Many people argue about what, what it is. Is it actually the chalice? Is it the bloodline, as Dan, Dan Brown says? Yeah. Is it instead some uh, idea of chivalry? Is it ancient knowledge? Is it, you know, what is exactly the Holy Grail itself? So that's a hard... Mm. If you tell me what exactly you're referring to, yeah, I, I then see I can make point. a guess as to where it is. All right, let's say it is the chalice from the Last Supper, as many people believe it is. Yeah, if, if that's the case, I don't think that's here. I, I don't think that's, you know, I think the, probably the most likely place for that is Glastonbury and, you know, the King Arthur legends, the Arthurian mm -hmm. legends are, are largely based on that. So I would say that's not here. But if you're talking about, you know, the bloodline things that Dan Brown wrote about in, in, in um, Da Vinci Code and previously were written about Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the whole idea of uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene having children. And, yeah. and by the way, uh, one of the things that Zena found in these journals from the 12th century, uh, is there are some really strong references to the marriage contract between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. It's one of the things that was brought over here by the Templars to hide in, in the Catskills. So, you know, if we're talking about those kinds of things, we're talking evidence of the marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, then I do think those things did make their way over across the Atlantic. I think the Templars brought yeah. those things here because they were so explosive and so dangerous that if they were caught with them in Europe, it would have been you know, the end of them, as it, as, it, as it was almost anyway. But they knew early on that they'd got to get the stuff away from the, uh, the eyes of the Church. So what would have been the big deal if Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married? Big deal. 
you know, it really shouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah, exactly. When you really think about it, it would have been natural. He uh-huh. was a rabbi, a Jewish right. rabbi, and, you know, it's almost required back then to have been married. It, it, the only difference is, is at some point somebody doubled down, somebody in the church doubled down on the fact that they weren't. And now you're sort of, you staked out, you know, a position and you're stuck with it. And, and we see that with history as well. Historians like Samuel Elliott Morrison sort of put the line in the sand that Columbus was here first, and now they're stuck with it despite evidence to the contrary. But you're right, there's really no big deal to it. It doesn't really change any of his teachings. No, it but doesn't. for some reason, that's the, that's the paradigm we're living with. Stand by, my friend. You and I have to take our final break. And ExoNation, uh, David Brody is our special guest. And if you find out all about David on his website at www.davidbrodybooks.com. That's www.davidbrodybooks.com. Don't forget, you can get your complimentary copy of the X Chronicles newspaper at www.xchroniclesnewspaper.com. Com. And to find out about all the great programming we have available for you, 724-365 on the Exxon Broadcast Network, including shows like A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. You've also got uh, Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiecka, Connecting with Coincidence with Dr. Bernard Beatman, and let me see one more. Oh, no, the name with Shrone Lynn Wyatt. I'm Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon, a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard in our 27th year here on the Exxon Broadcast Network and now on iHeartRadio. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back, everyone. I've got, just got a quick question for each and every one of you. Do you like to travel? You do? That's a great answer. If I could... If you could have a couple of nights free at a five-star hotel with our compliments, would you like that? You would? All right. Do this then. Send me an email, 
Exxon at ExxonRadioTV.com. In the subject, just put Westgate, W-E-S-T-G-A-T-E. That's all you need to do. Supply us with your contact information, and we will get you the information on how you and one other person can spend a couple of nights in a five-star resort with our compliments. David Brody is our special guest, www.davidbrodybooks.com. Uh, David, during the commercial break, we were talking, and you said that, 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 that there's something you'd like to add on to the, uh, to the goddesses in America. Right. So you would ask if there are goddess sites, and I mentioned yes. the, the stone circle mm-hmm. under the pond we found in Westford, Massachusetts recently. But the one I, I neglected to mention is sort of the, the granddaddy of them all, in my mind, which is the Newport Tower. It's the round stone tower in Rhode Island, and many of your listeners are probably familiar with it. And what's fascinating about the tower, and, and, and mainstream historians will tell us it's a colonial windmill from the 1670s, which is, uh, you know, which is not, not right, not accurate. And I, I happen to think it goes back to the late 14th uh, century um, and was built by the Templars. But one of the fascinating things about the tower is on the winter solstice, there is a, uh, a beam of sunlight that passes through one of the windows mm-hmm. and sort of changes shape and changes direction and illuminates an egg on the inside of the tower. And this is on the, on the winter solstice, the, the shortest, darkest day of the year. And the allegory for what that is, I mean, it, it, the sun has historically been associated with the male, mm-hmm. and, of course, the egg, especially inside a round tower, sort of the egg inside of the womb uh, is the female. And again, only once a year, at the shortest time of the year, do we have this, this uh, fertilization of, of the egg by the male son, uh, creating the rebirth of life. Uh, you know, in ancient times, people believed as the days were getting shorter and shorter and darker and darker and colder and colder that life might never return. And then they had a big celebration when the sun did start rising higher in the sky and becoming warmer again. And that's that's why we celebrate Christmas where we do. It's just after the winter solstice when we start to see, oh, yes, life is back. But this tower marks the rebirth of the sun, S-U-N, just as Christmas re- marks the rebirth of the sun, S-O-N. Uh, but that round stone tower, to me, it, it, is, is really a good example of goddess worship in the sense that we understand that it's the female who becomes impregnated by the male, that, that she's the one who gives life. And then we take it one step further, and we talked earlier about Mary Magdalene and mm-hmm. Jesus and you know, what would be so bad if they really were married and they had children. It would be a very healthy thing. Right. The name Magdalene, the Hebrew is Migdal, and the word Migdal in Hebrew means tower. So really Mary Magdalene means Mary of the Tower. And when you think about why the Templars would have built a round tower in America as opposed to a fortress or some other structure, I think perhaps it was because they were giving a nod to the goddess, Mary Magdalene, and they built Mar- the, the Tower of Mary here in, in America. So I think that is probably the best example of some kind of goddess shrine that we have here uh, from ancient times. In your opinion, what has been the greatest discovery here in the Americas when it comes to the goddess? When it comes to the goddess, I, I would say, um, and I haven't really talked about it very much, but these, these journals, uh, the one that Zena Halpern's been researching from 1178, the Templar Journal, and then the later one from the 14th century with the Sinclair family, both of the journals make frequent reference to the goddess and pay homage to the goddess. And um, I'm surprised to see that. I mean, that's really sort of 
uh, earth-shattering. When you think about what, what life was like in medieval times in Europe with the Inquisition and the, you know, and, and the Church putting mm-hmm. down people like the Cathars and the Albigensian Crusade in France. And, you know, if you were not an Orthodox Christian back then, you risked torture and death. And yet here we have two different sets of journals written by prominent families talking about the, the goddess and giving thanks and veneration to the goddess openly. And uh, oh, those, those are not sites in, in North America. They are journals found and relating to North America. And both of them together... Um, seem to betray the idea that this line of Templars slash Freemasons going back earlier to the Phoenicians uh, understood the importance of the goddess, understood the importance of balance and duality, and brought that over with them to America. Having, uh, having discussed everything we, we have done tonight, is, is um, Stonehenge in Glastonbury, is that a goddess site? Only to the extent it, it marks the seasons. Um, one of the fascinating things about the Stonehenge site in North America, mm-hmm. and I'm going to sort of answer your question with a little bit of a roundabout way, but I'm going to return to Stonehenge in England in this answer. Um, Stonehenge in, in New Hampshire, uh, just like Stonehenge in England, marks the various astronomical events, most prominently the summer solstice sunrise. Now, the ancient Phoenicians were, were, were Baal worshippers. They were sun worshippers. So the most important day of the year was the summer solstice. That was the longest day of the year. That was the sunniest day of the year. But if you could picture yourself sitting in the middle of Stonehenge, uh, America, looking out to the horizon at the sunrise, it would sit on top of a standing stone like a golf ball on a tee, okay? Right. Similar to what happened to Stonehenge, England. Now, imagine yourself on a magic carpet riding along that sunbeam mm-hmm. on the summer solstice sunrise across the Atlantic, and you'd have to do so instantaneously, you would cross the Atlantic, and 3,000 miles later, you would actually pass on that sunbeam through the arch at Stonehenge in England. Fascinating. And it sort of makes your hair on your back and your neck stand up, like, wow. They reverse-engineered the site in New Hampshire to line up at the summer solstice sunrise with the site in England. And now we continue on our magic carpet along that sunbeam to the Middle East to a site very close to the Golan Heights in Israel, which is ancient... Lebanon, the ancient Phoenician homeland, to a site called Israeli Stonehead, Gilgal Rephaim, another giant stone circle that marks the solstices and equinoxes, perhaps the homeland of the Phoenician Baal worshipping. So these sites, it's almost like they were built one after the other in reverse alignment to line up, reverse engineered to line up with each other on the summer solstice sunrise. So it's not exactly goddess worshipping. But it's, it's this idea that this ancient Phoenician culture, the worship of the sun, the worship of nature, came across not only to England, but then eventually onto North America. And we have these sites that line up almost perfectly on the summer solstice sunrise. It's fascinating. So are, were the Phoenicians the very first pagans? Uh, you, pagan's a good word for it. I mean, if you're talking about pagan being a non-Yahweh worshiper, yes. they were not the first. They were one of many. I mean, prior to the time of Abraham, Everybody was a pagan. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody on earth worshipped. But I, but nature. I mean, when you incorporate the 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 respect and the love they had for Mother Earth and 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 the goddess itself, you know, because pagans are right into goddess worship. Yeah, they were not the first. Again, every again, mm-hmm. everybody in ancient time had similar belief sets. Right. I think the Phoenicians are the ones 
whose shrines still stand today, and we can we can still see them. But there are, you know, any of the archaeological sites across the Middle East, there are tons of uh, finds, statuesques, amulets, whatever that worship that show worship of the ancient goddess. This goes back, you know, for time immemorial. It's really again only in relatively recent times in human history mm-hmm. have we had this idea of a male deity. In the past, it was always a female deity perhaps with a male consort, because we understood the, the importance of you know, male fertilization. But it was always the female being the life-giving force, and therefore right. the female being the deity. Makes a lot of sense when you really look at it. And I just, uh, right. I, you know, I thank, I thank you and, and the researchers that are out there that we've talked about tonight, because to me this is very rich. This should be taught in school. People should know about this, because it'll show how... How smart and and how beyond our comprehension that the ancients really were. And if we start to unravel these mysteries, what other mysteries are we going to come across that we can start saying, well, this mystery plus this mystery equals that answer? Uh, Amen to that, Rob. I mean, you're right on the right track with that. I totally agree. How many other books have you written all told? So I've written seven in this series. I call my Templars in America series, and Mm -hmm. essentially... They all talk of you know, various sites in North America that talk about the same things we, we discussed right. tonight. I have three books prior to that. They're legal thrillers. But uh, it's these seven that I'm most proud of. I think they really are uh, shining light into dusty, dark corners of history that really people should learn about, as you said. Well, listen, congratulations to you on the great work that you've done. Thank you so much for bringing it to light here on the Exxon Show tonight. Uh, all your books, are they available on Amazon.com and through your website? Yes, sir. Exactly. So that would be www.davidbrodybooks.com. What's the next book about, David? I am looking at um, going deeper into some of these journals. The, the, the journal that Zena Halpern wrote about tying in Oak Island and the Catskills, there's some really good stuff there. And I'm, I'm going I'm to take another shot at going deeper into that now that her book is out and... Um, Again, more about the Templars in America. It seems like a, a fertile area, and it's fascinating to me, and I think the readers enjoy it as well. Do me a favor. Don't be a stranger. Come back and visit us and tell us more about the Templars and about the goddess mm-hmm. and all the great things My that pleasure. you write about. My pleasure, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. David, thank you so much. And Exonation, visit David's website, buy his books. Christmas is coming right around the corner, and a book is something that can always be cherished and shared www.davidbrodybooks.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as we will continue investigating the world of the paranormal, the science of parapsychology, and all mysteries far and wide here on the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell from our broadcast center in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the Exxon Broadcast Network and our good friends at iHeartRadio. Radio. 